Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Matt Smith, the ballast in case we have some stormy weather, and my co-host is Rhiannon Evans, a classicist from La Trobe University. In this episode, we will take a look at Season 1, Episode 3, An Owl in a Thornbush, broadcast September 11, 2005. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. Uh, Welcome back to Raising Standards, Episode 3, with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a podcast for which we still do not have a better name for. You can't change it at this stage. No, you're right. Branding's done. In this episode of HBO's Rome, uh, broadly speaking, the city Rome reaction to Caesar marching on the city mm. and essentially you know, Pompey's reaction to that and a lot of panic. Mm. I like the panic. I mean, it's panic's horrible, but I think it's realistic that there would have been awful panic. Yeah, it never really occurred to me what it would be like to have a general with a legion marching on the city and to have the people that you look to, the senators, just suddenly march out. Mm. Yeah. They leave you to it. Yeah. And of course, there would have been people still alive who remembered the conflict between Marius and Sulla, Mm. which is, what, 30 years before? Less. Yeah. So in living memory for a lot of people. Mm. That means that they think that's probably going to happen again, I guess, Mm. or that it might be even worse now because Caesar is so overwhelmingly powerful. Mm. He's kind of a legend in his own lifetime. It makes absolute sense that people would have been boarding up their houses, as we've already seen, and you know, not really knowing where to turn, running around the streets in panic. Mm. And I like the fact that we get what looks like a realistic perspective on that. Yes. So just you know, broadly speaking, this episode seems to follow the texts pretty well as to what we know was happening during the march on Rome. Uh, Caesar does send word in the form of Lepidus coming back to tell the Senate what's going on. Rather than Varanus, as we have here. (laughs) Yeah. In the historical text, it's it's Lepidus, a character who doesn't make it to the show, uh, but was quite a big part of these sort of proceedings. Well, I guess this is a way of building up the part of, I mean, we've talked before about how Pullo and Varanus were real soldiers Mm. uh, who get name mentioned, name checked in Caesar's Gallic Wars. But this is a way of making their part in the history ongoing. Yeah, it gives them something to do. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Pompey and the senators decide how they're going to react to this. They've got, right, Caesar's got this many men. We've got this many men. But our men aren't that great. Caesar's coming back with war veterans. We're going to have a strategic retreat. So all of that... Checks out. That's what happened. It yeah? does. Uh, and the our sources on this, are they're later, but they're uh, still uh, consistent historical sources from Appian's Civil War and Dio's Roman history. So Appian in Book 2 of the Civil Wars, uh, chapters 36 and 7, kind of talks about this panic amongst the Senate in particular. Um, and 
the debate that's going on. So I'll read the beginning of chapter 36 and then a bit from a bit later on in this chapter in 37. When the consuls heard this news, i.e. Caesar's coming, they would not allow Pompeius a free hand to stabilize the situation in light of his military experience, but urged him to leave Rome quickly and recruit in Italy as if the city would soon, very soon be captured. Mm. So there we get a slightly different dynamic where the consuls are urging Pompey not to go overseas yet, but to recruit in Italy. Um, and the reason is, and this is quite consistent with what we've seen of Caesar in other sources, including his, his own work, because Caesar's invasion had taken place much sooner than they had expected. Caesar's always quick in, mm. in our sources. Yes. Um, the remainder of the Senate were frightened. So Appian says they are actively frightened. They're scared of mm. Caesar. They were still unprepa unprepared and in panic. They repented of having rejected Caesar's proposals. So they're already regretting not going over to his side, basically. They only found them reasonable when ha when fear had turned their partisanship into a readiness to take wise decisions. That's a very rhetorical uh, phrase from Appian saying that they changed their mind as soon as they, it, things got a bit scary and shaky. Uh, then he says there were marvels and signs from heaven, which is always fun. I don't think we get this in the series. This would have been good, though. The sky seemed to rain blood. Ancient statues of the gods sweated. Several temples were struck by lightning and a mule foaled. There's always a mule involved. They're meant to be barren, aren't they, mules? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there were ma many other prodigies, not even just that, which portended the destruction and permanent transformation of the constitution. Mm. Easy for Appian to read it like that after the fact. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. It would have been a very different show if they had um, blood raining and statues weeping and that sort of thing. But I guess, you know, if it started to rain, then at least you'd have the symbolism of a statue weeping. You'd have what you call the pathetic fallacy, mm. where the mood of the people is, or the mood of the characters is in line with the weather and the landscape. Mm. Uh, yeah, and this, this I think, is important. The people, reminded of the sufferings of the time of Marius and Sulla, clamoured for Caesar and Pompeius to abandon the politics of personal power. Yeah, fair so, enough, so as they, you would. <laughs> they, they want some kind of mediation. Yeah. They want the war to be stopped. Mm. Um, and then in Chapter 37, we get Pompey sort of objecting to the, the Senate and the consuls in particular, trying to uh, determine what he should do. Um, and he just he leaves Rome for the army at Capua. Mm. So Capua is a place where he can then get out to sea if he wants to. So where Spartacus yeah. started his well, career. Well remembered. Hey, there yeah. we go. Down in southern Italy. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. So that's good that they spent that amount of time showing us these beats rather than just Pompey beating a retreat or something like that. The other thing maybe noteworthy about this episode is that sometime after these episodes were broadcast, Michael Apted, the director of the first three episodes, did an interview where he said, yeah, when they were broadcast on the BBC, the first three episodes, which he directed, were edited into two episodes. Uh, and there was um, a couple of reasons, apparently. Uh, one, the BBC didn't think that they needed all the political developments and so much history mm -hmm. in it. And they wanted to kind of emphasize the, the blood sports slash bull sacrifices slash Nudity. slash. <laughs> Let's just put it that Yeah. And I hate to think what you would have lost in that kind of thing. What could you lose? Um, well, I wonder if we can, if those versions are available. I hope uh, not. <laughs> I kind of hope yeah. they're not. Yeah. Yeah. 
did they think people already knew the history? Surely yes. not these days. That's what they thought. No. That's what that's what their excuse what was. Their loss. But, you know, HBO, who I guess were, were making it, broadcast them in full. And Michael Apted, as you imagine, would have been quite annoyed mm. about that. Yeah, I have to say, I never feel like the, or so far anyway, that there's over-explaining in this series. No. But, uh, which sometimes you do get a sort of, you know, retelling and overemphasizing yeah. the stuff you need to know to to understand the Roman background here or the background in whatever context it is. I, I mean, I can see a couple of things that you can maybe do without if you had to. Like, you know, in, in episode two, if you just cut out the bit where Pullo gets his head smacked in with a bottle and amphora and the surgery bit, mm-hmm. then later on he just turns up with a bandana on and that's fine. You know what I mean? You, you, there's bits you could maybe edit around. But, you know, then you've got episodes like this where there doesn't seem to be a lot of fat on it as far as yeah. political scenes go. And the only parts, I think, which aren't integral to the plot hugely is um, Verena's asking Pullo for marriage advice. Mm. And you wouldn't want that out of the episode. Cause <laughs> well, I mean, there is a whole... They, they've decided, and we have sort of talked about this before, to have that personal family dimension to this, to mm. try and imagine what a, a Roman family in these circumstances might have been like, what would the dynamics have been like. So I guess they have to... That has to that has to continue through these episodes. Mm, mm. You could edit Artia out of this episode. I wouldn't want to, mm-hmm. but the whole people pledging fealty to her, her house being, they, they're very good scenes, and you'd miss out that great fight scene that she has with Octavia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, you like a cat fight. Uh, <laughs> it was a very good cat fight. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, some of it certainly you could say just for plot points, you could miss out, but then, you know, I guess you could do the whole plot in a couple of hours if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are getting some interesting insights into um, this is almost anthropology going on, and that's what happens with that scene with art here. Yes. This, this idea of patronage. Mm. So there is at least a kind of HBO version of these uh, sociological phenomena that we know of from ancient Rome. I'm not saying they're doing it for educational purposes. <laughs> I was about to say, this is, this oh. is a historian answering the question. <laughs> but we can, we can talk about it from that point of view. And I, and I think it would, trying to, I have to try and imagine what it would be like to be a viewer who's coming to this um, purely for entertainment. Mm, mm. Um, and I think that you would still pick up bits and pieces. Yes. Then you might wonder how authentic they are. But it's interesting that they, they did decide to put it in. And it's it's important part of Artia's character because it shows her as a powerful character, which is interesting in itself. We might as well wade into the start of the episode then, because the first scene is with her just mercilessly, casually, mm. just nonchalantly whipping a slave. Which is in keeping with the way we've seen the treatment of slaves so far, where Octavian similarly just sort of batted one across the Yeah, very, very dismissive kind of property. Yeah. This is for your own good. It's hurting me more than it's hurting you kind of thing. Mm. Um in keeping with that, my question is more about the background that's right behind her. Are they uh, there's bus which seem to be black stone of yeah. some sort and are they what you'd call ancestor masks is that what that would be inferring people did have ancestor masks particularly in their atrium these might be busts they might be portrait statues or they're, they're, the romans also have funeral masks so they'd take a um an impression of a deceased's face yeah right and then um in what just like put a bit of clay, wet clay yeah, up to the face. Yeah, and then you could and... have a bust made out of that as wow. well. Wow. 
They're known primarily as funeral masks because you then take them, wear them if they were a mask, or you can carry the busts in a funeral procession as mm. if the ancestors are there at the funeral as well. But we know from various sources that they seem to have stood in the atrium to sort of greet people, I suppose, yeah. remind people of their past. Um, for example, Cicero is a very particular circumstance, but in the Philippics, uh, his speeches against Antony, this is a quote from uh, chapter 26 of the second speech, the Bruti, one of whom saw every day in his house the image of Lucius Brutus. All right, so the Bruti. Every day you're walking yeah. past this ancestor mask. Yeah, who, yeah. Uh, and the other saw the image of Ahala. Um, were these men to seek counsel from the ancestors of others rather than from their own? So yeah. he's, I mean, he's doing it in this highly rhetorical flourish, but he's saying that they didn't need to go get advice from others. They had their own ancestors there to inspire them. Mm, mm. And other sources too from the imperial period suggest a very similar kind of thing. Like the elder Pliny has talks about this when he's talking about statuary. It's clear that these were, were just there in the background, yeah. so in the, both the Republican and Imperial periods. As, as they are very much in this. It's very um, kind of, uh, and, you know, I, I realise this is a show that came a lot later than Rome. In, in Game of Thrones, you've got those halls of uh, people whose faces you can take. I don't know if you've seen that no. far ahead. It was um, Arya Stark, I think, was, was taking... People who have watched Rome and who have watched Game of Thrones are completely on my page here. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I, I, will, you. I will take your blank look and we will move on. <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't watch Game of Thrones. I'm sure you're right, and I'm sure they're inspired by Rome. <laughs> These scenes that we get are in, in kind of very quick succession where we're just getting different reactions from people about Caesar moving on Rome. So that's the one from Artia who is quite... Heaved, you know, didn't he think about us and what this is going to do to mm. us, uh, which is going to have bearing out in the rest of the episode. Then we get Pompey, who isn't really worried, and he's gathering his legions, and at this point he's just, mm. you know. Well, I guess in a way, I don't know if you got this impression from the series. I mean, we are backing up what we saw in the previous episode, that it needs to be rammed home to us that this is something illegal that yes. Caesar's doing. Yeah. The way that Pompey is portrayed in this series and the this kind of machinations, I mean, I know he was trying to get uh, the outcome he wanted without it coming to this. Yeah. But now that Caesar has decided that he's going to invade, in a way it makes it clear what his part is, that Caesar has made himself an enemy of Rome. Mm -hmm. So it's not that difficult for him to know what to do. He has to confront this. He has to decide whether he's got the troops to do that here and now or whether he has to go somewhere else and gather them. Yeah, yeah. it also seems a bit like a, a game of chicken at this point between him and Caesar. So he's got to put up the kind of brave front there. Uh, then we get uh, Caesar sending Varinus and Paulo. And I believe I said this in the last episode as well, very Caesar-like this episode. We see yeah. him at the start, we see him at the end. I, I want to see more of him too. Mm. I mean, you mm. know. Considering, you know, he's the the, the kind of pivotal. Yeah, but do, do you think that's deliberate in that, I mean, he's not a cameo role, very much not so, but he's almost so famous that you don't want too much of him. Yeah. I always want more of Kieran Hines, so it's not that. <laughs> but um, he's... You say that every episode. I at some do. At some point, I'll remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I just go, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I just think he's so great. Uh, but I feel like well, there could be a couple of things going on, and I realize I'm trying to second guess uh, TV 
make, uh, you know, makers of TV shows here, that people feel like they know him so well that they don't need so much of him. And also, this series is very deliberately concentrating on those less elite, lesser known figures. Yes. I mean, you could watch this series and not know that they existed at all, Varenus and Pullo. You could, you would assume, I think most, most people may have assumed that they were made up characters so that we saw this from the perspective of someone from the lower classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whereas if we focus more on Caesar, then we are very much getting that extremely elite point of view. Mm, mm. I mean, that's a story that's been told as well. Um, and, you know, he'll get his due. It's just at this point, he bookends the episode again. Uh, does get a couple of very good scenes. And I think that there's enough in there without laying it on too thick. And, you know, we're seeing everything that we need to from the point of view of other characters. And I think as a result, you know, seeing more of Rome's story in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, which is a much more interesting way to show the reactions, mm. I think. So uh, Caesar sends Varinus and Pullo uh, with the cavalry and a proclamation. Uh, and Mark Antony says, uh, nail it to the front doors of the Senate if you meet no resistance, which I'm sure he said in jest as kind of like a flippant, I'm Mark Antony kind of comment. Well, the way Mark Antony is portrayed <laughs> here, which I think is something we, we might talk about at more length at some point, is... It's kind of in keeping with that, isn't yes, it? Yes, everything he says is flippant. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and then at that point, Caesar gets caught up uh, with what is making Varinus so morose. And somehow Mark Antony knows that he's a Catonian. That, yeah. It's just why are they talking about such lower yeah. minions, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, I know Varinus and Polo have been built up. They've sort of got a special position because they saved Octavian. Yeah kind of by chance um and they they got the eagle back so i guess they might be of more note because of that in the context of this series mm. but yeah it's it's a bit unlikely that mark antony would know his philosophical um, position uh or maybe he's just guessing because that's the only reason you would be gloomy about all of this no no i, I, I mean he's right yeah oh <laughs> yeah and and based on that i'd say it's maybe you know they they had some talk on the road under the stars <laughs> i think we're overthinking it yeah possibly <laughs> us overthink what makes your man varina so morose stonewall catonian thinks we've committed a terrible crime a mighty sacrilege and shall be severely punished by the gods he may be right it's a crime if we lose if we win it isn't i'm merely pursuing my legitimate rights anthony of course you think we can trust him who oh. Lucius Varinus. Oh. Deep 13th him. He followed the eagle up Pluto's arse. We now continue the family drama storyline of this episode with Niobe being surprised by... I don't know if it's said, but it is her brother-in-law, mm. Evander Pulchio, who is the father of her son. Mm. So this is who she's been messing about with. She thought Varinus was dead, yes. Yeah. Um now, I can't remember. Do we at some point come across, is her sister still alive? And therefore, is this Do adultery anyway? Do you want anyway? to tell you spoilers? I know. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Don't tell me. There we go. Tell me nothing. So, I know it's all going to come out at some point, hasn't yeah. it? I've honestly forgotten. But I remember they would, what happens. They, they, <laughs> they wouldn't bother putting these elements in if it wasn't all going to blow up at some point, from, uh, I think. He makes a move on her. She sends him away. The daughter comes in, Verena the Elder, and words are said. Um, but that's continuing that kind of simmering storyline, mm. which is important to Verena's. And I wish a bit more was made of in some ways, but maybe it didn't need to be any more than it was. It's it's brewing. 
it's building. Yeah, yeah. That one's there in the background and it will start to reveal more about Roman families and powers. That's very quickly followed by Verinus getting marriage advice from Pullo, which was just, I guess they'd run out of things to talk about. They'd been on the road so much together by this point. <laughs> there's actually, now, now that we come to talk about this episode, there's a lot in this episode that is a continuation of and a kind of reinforcement of things that we met in the previous episode, which mm. is not to say that I think the BBC was right to edit, <laughs> edit out elements. But this obviously is more of a build-up of the idea that Varenus feels out of place in his family. We talked about that a lot in mm. our podcast on the last episode, about how that might reflect the family dynamics of someone who'd been away so long. And yeah. in a way, we have to sort of guess what it might be like, but it doesn't. it's not out of place with what we know of the Roman family yes. in the way that they portray it. Um, whether men would actually... I mean, Varenus looks very uncomfortable talking about this, so I guess they're, they're suggesting that it's not something that is natural to him. Mm. He's very hesitant, but he, he's also kind of desperate to know how to fit back into his family. And he's and he's clearly, you know, realising that this is the last resort by asking Pullo. <laughs> and I, I like that they, they come back to this a couple of times during the episode where it's, it's clear that Pullo has just said everything that he can possibly think of before he accidentally stumbles on good advice. You know, give her the bleeding heart of an enemy, go and make a sacrifice. And, <laughs> yeah. and then he finally just stumbles on, why don't you talk to her? <laughs> that, I mean, that does seem very, very modern advice. It does seem very self-help booky to me, but, and therefore... Oh, I think what it was even more modern advice was the sex advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was taking notes at that point. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, disclaimer, I was taking notes, but I was not, yeah. You are taking notes so we could talk about that. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> not yeah. because I needed them. Yeah, and, I, and, you know, there is a certain amount of comedy in that. There's definitely comedy in that, um, in the character of Polo. Mm. It kind of lends that um but also in the interaction between these two characters so i think what most of what these scenes are doing is turning this into a, a buddy pair so yes. they've been a very unlikely pair of friends and mm. they still kind of are mm -hmm. but they're growing closer kind of despite themselves i suppose so one sort of throwaway line was uh Verenus being worried about um who will honor him if he died mm. so he says who will pay Prosperina and Pluto for my keep? Proserpina. There we go. And who will pour wine upon my grave? Mm -hmm. When he said that, I've kind of gone, uh, grave, cremation, Roman. You do pour wine kind of thing in their honour, don't you? Yes. This is certainly a concern that Romans might have after their death, that somebody would be there to take care of these rituals. And so he's concerned that the rites are paid to the gods of the underworld. So Pluto is the same as Hades, essentially. Yeah. Hades is really the place you go to. Um, the, or Dis, he's sometimes called. So the god of the underworld, uh, who's sort of the equivalent of Zeus being the god of the heavens, or Jupiter. And Proserpina is the same as Persephone. She's okay. his wife stroke wife. niece yeah. who was abducted and kept down there for part of the year i know it's complicated with the gods wife stroke niece is just everything you need to say about greek <laughs> mythology really <laughs> well she's the daughter of jupiter yeah, yeah yeah and the there's evidence that you know for wine libations and that there was actually there, there was a mechanism where, whereby you could pour wine into the grave or the, the urn for the ashes mm. so so this is something that needs to be done 
And this is uh, kind of one of the reasons for having a family to do this for you afterwards. Yeah. And he's worried, I guess, that he's alienated his family to the extent that that might not happen. Yeah, yeah, which is a valid kind of concern, I think. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so that's uh, that scene, and we get a couple of others as well with Verinus and Pullo. But let's kind of move one up in the narrative here and talk about uh, then coming across Pompey's men, which did happen a little bit later, but you know we'll just discuss it now. So. One is the cavalry that they are traveling with are clearly not Roman soldiers. Mm. And I think a lot of people might see that and go, wait, what's going on here? Because they're, they're called, Caesar might have called them the Ubian cavalry, mm-hmm. which tells you, Rhiannon, the Roman historian, everything you need to know about the guys <laughs> who are on screen, really. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're, they're Germani. So they're from across the Rhine mm. from Gaul. Um, and this is, I mean, the cavalry were locals usually, or certainly mercenaries, non-Romans, all right? So the Roman citizens are the infantry, mm-hmm. the cavalry you get from somewhere else. Yeah. So that makes sense. And it, it gives the series a chance to depict a group of people who are looking hairier and you know, not wearing traditional Roman military uniforms. So they've got a bit of variety going on there and they they look quite tough, yeah. I guess. And and Ubian is their tribe name. They're from the, yeah. U- the Ubi. Yeah, they're, they're a Germanic people. But you might have had cavalry as well, say, from Spain, yeah, for yeah. argument's sake, or, you know, from... Uh... Or from Gaul itself. Yeah, sure. Uh, and this happens as the empire expands, that there's kind of more places that you can extract both slaves and cavalry from mm. and, and recruit into the army, so... Yeah. So that's why they've essentially got some extras from an Asterix movie with them <laughs> at the at the scene there where they come across Pompey's men who are, and I kind of, you know, thought this was pretty realistic, really disturbingly young. You know, like these these were teenagers. They look like their helmets didn't fit them for, for quite a lot of them. And they're essentially, it's insinuated that they're just massacred. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just disturbing. Yeah, and, and it's Pullo who instigated that by just yeah. saying, no, we can take them. Come on, let's go. And Verena's is, no, our orders were to not engage and return. Mm-hmm. And Pullo just pulled out his sword. Never goes by the rules, <laughs> Buffy. <laughs> and, uh, and the UBE just follow him because, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and a messenger makes it back to Pompey, who from that point on worries. So we'll uh, we'll leave that thread there and go to Atia, shall mm-hmm. we? Yeah, I will just say with the Ubi, and I don't know if this is what's being played on, that the Roman um, stereotype of the Germani in particular is that they are always ready for a fight. So the fact that they follow they, Pullo I was about to say, into well that done. fight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because their warfare is kind of the the leading light of their lives. So mm. they don't have a kind of civilian life outside of that, according to Caesar himself mm. in his ethnography of the the Germani, that this is kind of how they live their lives. The fact that they made Germani, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it's a good coincidence if it is. So uh, Pullo picked up a few bad habits. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move our commentary over, commentary, over to the Artia storyline now, who I guess is a very important part of this episode because we are seeing how the different factions operate within Rome and how they're perceived within Rome, and she is essentially Caesar's representative. She literally is later on in the episode, uh, 
uh, Caesar's proxy in Rome until he gets there, I guess. Yeah, and at the beginning of the episode, she's annoyed by this because it puts her in danger. It does. But pretty soon she starts playing up to it. Well, as soon as it looks like it's going to go in her favour. <laughs> yeah, yeah at, I guess so. But at, at the start of this episode, she's... Uh, and, and I bristled at this scene, and I'm sure you did as well. Um, Timon kind of has a bit of swagger in him, and it's like, if, if you want me to get more men, you're going to have to give me something. And even though she's a high-ranking Roman woman and he's... He's a henchman, really, isn't he? <laughs> but she, she gives him a line of going, uh, uh, what are you wearing perfume? The, mm. the smell of horse shit suits you better or yeah. something like that. <laughs> even though you've got that very difference in dynamic, uh, he's still kind of got the, the gender power over her, if mm. you want to look at it that way. Yeah, I guess, so. yeah, you certainly could read it like that, yeah. The way that Artie is depicted is she's always up for sex anyway, so if it's what she has to do to to get what she needs. You're not made to feel like that's a problem. But yeah. I don't know. I kind of like your reading of it better. I just, <laughs> it's not the way I had read it at the time. That's okay. I'll, yeah. be, I'll be the lib person in this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think there might be, you might well be right that even though she's she has certainly in her blood, patrician blood there, mm. being related to the Julie, she is still in a position where she needs a man to do some dirty work for her. Therefore, she has to give him what he wants too. Mm, no matter what yeah. stature of society he's yeah. at. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and it's sort of it's it's interesting both in terms of uh, gender politics in Rome and mm. in 2005 when this was made. And, and just <laughs> as a sidebar, I'm going to clip out that you may be right what you said earlier and make that my ringtone because <laughs> <laughs> I only said maybe <laughs> <laughs> and that's the rest of my ringtone <laughs> but yeah but that's a it's a nice little bit of uh, a swagger scene for time and there as well uh, so what that scene then evolves into is um, time and a bunch of men defending Atia's home while she's having a dinner party with mm-hmm. Servilla and Brutus. Servilia. Servilia and Brutus, which I, I guess are the only ones who would RSVP at that point when <laughs> Rome's being marched on by Caesar. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting getting them together, of course, because mm. they are all big names from Roman history. Artia, Servilia and her son Brutus. And he he's going to be so important in uh, subsequent history. They all have to kind of decide where they stand at this pivotal moment. Mm, mm. But at this point, I suppose, you know, realistically, they are all pro-Caesar. It's actually difficult for me to see whether it's clear to people watching this for the first time and not knowing the background. We do know, I think, by this stage that Servilia has had a, a long-term affair with Caesar, which there is historical evidence for. I mean, look, we find that out later on in this episode. I don't think it's come up in the show yet. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, she has a stake in what happens with Caesar because she has this connection with him. It seems likely that she will side with him. Mm. But there's a decision to be made for these aristocrats at this time. Mm. Mm. Um, And it may be that their ideology leads them a different way. Yes. And certainly that will turn out to be the case for Brutus. We also get an absolutely cracking fight. Can I call it that? Between Octavia and Atia. Do they say they might have to kill themselves? I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. So Artie's going around, going to the slave, going, right, you can kill me. Yes. After I kill, you know, Octavian, honey, who would you like to kill you? 
Yeah, I can look after myself, mother. Oh, you're such a brave boy. <laughs> yeah. So the the idea that they might be prearranging who will kill whom. Yeah. And of course, Artie is doing it in a very self possessed kind of way. That's mm. the way her character is being drawn, which is quite fun to watch. Um, and the the fact that Octavian is looking grown up by saying that he can do it himself. This, I mean, it's referring to uh, an idea that that suicide is not shameful for mm. the Romans, that in certain circumstances, in certain circumstances, it is considered the right thing to do rather than be taken, rather than being defeated. And we're going to see more of this in the civil war that's coming up. Well, if I can pull a couple of historical uh, con uh, examples out, uh, Seneca is one. Yeah. Noble suicide. A lot, lot later. Nero is one. Nero doesn't kill himself. He gets a slave to kill himself, to kill him. Yeah, because he can't quite do it. But there you go. But that's bad. Yeah. Having a slave have to help you. That's why Suetonius draws that as a kind of cowardly death. Oh, well, there we go. Not so, being able to take charge of it yourself. So, so Octavian so is being... So in this scene, yeah, yeah you've, got, you've got Octavian being the noble one by saying, I can look after myself, mother. Mm -hmm. But you've got Attia just completely going to the slave, uh, after I kill my daughter, you kill me. Mm. So... There you go. She doesn't want to get her hands dirty with her own blood. Maybe maybe that's what they're having a go at. Or I mean, it makes her look in charge. I don't think she is buying into the line that we seem to get with Nero. Because N Nero actually does try to do it himself, and then he just can't kind of face it. That's so he right, has, to, yeah, he has yeah. to get some help from the slave. So I don't think they're quite playing the same game with Artia. They're not making her look... Certainly, she doesn't look like she couldn't No, she looks very it. much in control just, of the scene. She's yeah. just outsourcing it because, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. she can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not that it comes to that, but yeah. It doesn't. Um, no, otherwise, this would be quite a short series. Mm, mm. I will kill Octavia, and Meryl attends to me, but if she cannot and I am taken alive, then you must kill me. And then you must kill yourself. Your survival would be... Inappropriate. I would not think of living, Domna. Octavian, who would you prefer kills you? I'm old enough to take care of myself. Oh, that's my brave little man. So from Varinus and Pullo's uh, massacre of Pompey's troops, I'm going to assume that it's massacre, but you never see anybody mm. swing a sword or anything. They just chase them around a bit. But anyway, people die there. Uh, a messenger gets back to the Senate who are very aghast that this happened. And uh, very much in the, in the last episode where you've got Pullo unintentionally making sure that Mark Antony doesn't get to cast his veto. In this episode, you've got him affecting an event which makes Caesar seem more aggressive than he originally intended, I guess, mm. and forcing the Senate's hand here. So uh, Pompey's very frightened by this, uh, knowing that he would be far inferior to Caesar should the legions show up. I think he, he does a bit of quick mathematics and works out that they are going to be overwhelmed. Yeah. And they're talked into a strategic retreat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think as an audience, we're quite surprised by that. And our surprise is voiced by the most extreme man in the room mm. at all points, Cato. Yes. And I don't know whether the fact that it's Cato who says, you know, you've lost Rome without even trying, without mm. sheathing your sword. Yeah. I think it's clear to us by this point, it certainly is if you know anything about Roman history, that Cato doesn't really care if he's just going to lose everything. All right, Cato will be in the position where you fight for what you believe in. Mm. The odds don't matter. Mm. You just do it because you should. There's no tactical position for Cato. He will remain firm whatever happens. You just stand and you fight for what you believe in. You, tactical withdrawal, it's not in his vocabulary. He also drops a C word in the scene. <laughs> 
<laughs> he marches up to Pompey. Did you? <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> I clearly had blanked it out. <laughs> it's just, I bet you, Carl Johnson loved doing that. <laughs> so I've got a Dio quote here. Mm. Uh, Dio 41, 6. Uh, Pompey was frightened by this, as in uh, Caesar marching on Rome, uh, knowing well that he would be far inferior to Caesar if they should get put themselves in the power of the people, and accordingly set out for Campania before the envoys returned. Uh, he had sent envoys to Caesar to kind of have a, a chat mm-hmm. with the idea that he could easily carry on war there. He also commanded the whole Senate together with the magistrates to accompany him, granting them permission for their absence by a decree and announcing to them that he would regard anyone who remained behind in exactly the same light as those who were working against him. It's very clear from this episode that they're forced into taking sides. Mm. If they remain, they can't be neutral. Mm. They're taking Caesar's side. So Brutus is the one who encapsulates this mm. decision. We don't see any other senators having a problem with it, and why would we? Because we're mostly seeing you know, Cicero, Cato, and a, a little bit of Scipio. Mm-hmm. And so you've got Brutus really struggling with the, with that decision, but you had several hundred senators. Mm. Is that right about this point? I know the number fluctuates, but you know, you would have senators who would stay behind for Caesar. I'm sure. Oh yes, yeah. yeah, he would have had his supporters. I think it's interesting that Dio says Pompey knows he's not going to win with the people, mm. but he's essentially, according to Dio, realised that he's got the Senate and the people who support the Senate. And the rest of the people, Caesar has all of them already. Yeah. Without even being in Rome, they're already on his side. So uh, another thing that we get is uh, we get a bit of a packing scene where Pompey gets his family together. And his wife, Cornelia, who was a sidebar in the first episode... Well, she was there to marry him after he had, you know, spent the night with with Octavia. She gets more character development in this episode Mm. than I thought that they would ever accord to her, as in she's the one who says to Pompey, maybe stop by the treasury (laughs) and take some stuff on your way out. Mm. And I'm sure that that would have occurred to Pompey, but he seems to be in a state of shock in this episode, and she rallies him up a bit. Well, I think that they're acknowledging what people have often said, but it's very hard to get concrete evidence for, is that elite Republican women Mm. would have had a lot more influence than we can put data to. Yes. All right. So they're not in the Senate. They're not voting, but they are living with the people who are in charge in Rome. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not unlikely that, that something like this might have happened or she would have had influence in some way. And this is a panic situation. And I know that the answer is going to be not a lot, but what do we know about Cornelia? <laughs> Very little. <laughs> um she had been married to uh, Publius Licinius Crassus, so very aristocratic himself. Plutarch discusses her virginity, and then this is this will be in the life of Pompey, right? Yeah. Then says, the young woman had many charms apart from her youthful beauty, well-versed in literature, in playing the lyre, and in geometry, and had been accustomed to listen to philosophical discourses with profit. Okay. I don't know if playing the lyre is always considered a good thing. Um, certainly Sallust will depict in the Conspiracy of Catiline a bad woman as knowing too much about music and dancing, mm. Sempronia. I think this is meant to be quite surprising that she can do philosophy 
Mm. You know, she knows enough to do that. So she's very well educated. Surprising to Plutarch, at least. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and absolutely. geometry. Um, and, and who are the two young kids that she was shepherding around at that point? Because I'm, I, I was kind of watching this going, okay, how long is she meant to have been married to Pompey for? <laughs> yeah. They're not long enough to have children that age. Oh, it's like a year at the most yeah. at this point. Because, yeah, and in fact, yeah. they don't have children. They didn't have children. Pompey already had um, three children with his third wife. And... They're probably all too old to be those children. The one who, um, I guess, has the, the most to do with the action of Roman history is the younger son, Sextus, who will end up, is this spoilers, but he'll end up opposing Octavian in the 30s. Yeah. He was probably born around 67 BCE, mm. an older teenager by now. Yeah. All those kids were, what would you say, about like, eight, mm, <laughs> ten? Yeah. If that, yeah. Yeah, so they're too young, but then I guess that makes it more empathetic. They're in more need of care. She's, it, I mean, it's never made absolutely clear in the series, but I suppose it, we're meant to infer that she's their stepmother, but she's still taking care of them. Okay. The Romans very much had uh, that kind, the the idea of the stepmother that we get from uh, fairy tales they're evil mm, right? mm. so she's being the opposite of that we also get a short scene with pompey's men raiding this the treasury mm. putting gold bars in boxes picking up lots of gold coins filling up a wagon killing who i'm assuming is pompey's main soldier who was left in charge of that task mm. and uh, rather than going out through the appian gate which is south they go north through the what gate would that be I presume it's the Via Flaminia. They're going north because Pompey's going south. Yes. We're meant to. <laughs> if, you, if you're think... nicking, nicking off with all the gold, you go in the opposite yeah, direction. But then again, you're heading it. towards Caesar. Anyway, they clearly don't have the best thought out plan beyond that. Mm. Uh, and the other people to leave Rome are a, a long wagon train of senators mm. and some various guards and soldiers, I guess, uh, with their families. Cicero in a nice litter, mm-hmm. and Cato on foot. Mm. He's the hard stoic. Yes. He, he would do that. I kind of enjoyed watching what that might have looked like. We know as historians that the Senate, most of them left Rome. Yes. But I've never really thought of how that would, you know, how you would enact that. Yes. And then, yeah, they do it for me. It's, it's good that they went, you know, to they actually thought about it. What would that look like? Mm. But, uh, in Cicero's defense, later on in the episode when they're, uh, when they are actually on the road and somebody asks Pompey, where's the gold? Uh, Cicero is on foot there. I don't know why. He maybe got out to stretch his legs. Now let's rejoin uh, Atius' storyline and uh, pick up the thread of Octavia being morose, justifiably so, about her ex-husband Glabius, and Glabius still fawning over her. So she sneaks out in the middle of the night to go and have a, a rendezvous that sounds wrong to use a French term in this show, but anyway. No, it's fine. Okay, all right, off they go. They seem to go to essentially like a, a, a pay-by-the-hour motel, mm. or that equivalent in Rome. <laughs> and they're guided down the hall. Did, did you spot the... Is it a blind Cupid? Is that a thing? It was a young boy who seemed to be feeling his way down the hall. The inference was that he was blind, I guess, for discretionary reasons, I guess. Maybe. It looked like a bit of uh, window dressing, which I thought was quite a nice thing to do, but yeah. So they have the episode's obligatory sex scene. Artia gets wind of this and sends Timon out to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And essentially fixing the problem is kill Glabius, because I don't want him causing issues around my daughter now that they're not married anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, it, this is this is kind of the outcome of Artia's machinations failing, isn't it? Because mm. she she forced the divorce so that Octavia could marry Pompey, and there was some talk about I think about Julius Caesar possibly want, talking about that, um, and then that doesn't come off because he marries Cornelia. So now Artia is depicted as just trying to keep Glabius out of the picture, presumably so that she can reposition Octavia with somebody else. Yeah, well, Octavia being unmarried now becomes something valuable especially when it looks like caesar's going to win no matter how temporary that situation is glabius is killed and then rocks up on artia's doorstep uh, I, I didn't know if that would be an accurate thing of you know dragging the corpse to outside artia's house is a dramatic thing it is um i mean i guess you could say there's such chaos in rome at this point <laughs> Dog's nose was suddenly very startling. Sorry. <laughs> Come here. Come here. Go back to bed. That there's such chaos in Rome at this point so that you might well have dead bodies dragged up somewhere. Mm. Um, however, the bigger picture is this is all fiction anyway. Yes. Octavia is married to someone else completely called Marcellus. She was already married to him before this series starts. She was married to him, you know, before 54, and we didn't start until 52. Um, and she is married to him until he dies in 40. Through all of this time, and they have children together, Octavia is otherwise occupied. <laughs> so all of this, it, it basically, I'm, I guess, is to show us how powerful Artia is and that she will get her way, and that's the way she's being depicted here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that she will use her daughter as a pawn, and I think that is partly meant to convey to us what could happen with daughters in Roman society, although usually it would be the father or a male relative arranging this. So Artia is taking that place, again, to show us how powerful she is and to set up this, I guess, dramatically enjoyable to watch plot whereby we ha now have these two women in conflict with each other because, of, of course, Octavia is is distraught and very angry with her mother. So this is a very poor mother-daughter relationship, isn't it? We've seen that all along. The other scenes that we have with Artia in this episode are uh, her, when it's very clear that Caesar is going to march triumphantly, triumph, into Rome, uh, accepting the fealty of a few worried senators and powerful businessmen in the city who stay behind because they want to protect their financial interests by the sound of it, but are also very worried about what sort of reaction Caesar might have when he crosses their paths. Yeah, and I think this is, I mean, it's special circumstances because we're heading for civil war, but it's a form of the daily ritual of clients going and seeing their patron. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this idea that Artia coming from such a powerful family is somebody that it's worth going and almost paying homage to to ensure your but, safety under Caesar. And again, it's quite unusual that they're doing that to a woman. Mm. So she's standing in as the traditional father of the family, the pater familias. But the, the way that they grovel towards her and the way that she sits up above them almost <laughs> on a throne, yeah. it's, it, it does everything it can to put that perception across as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, she, she pulls those scenes off very well. Before we hit the end of this episode, it's it's worth touching on the scene where uh, Varinus and Pullo go into the Roman Forum, deserted. So I guess everyone's, you know, hiding. And, and we are kind of given that impression that the streets are very quiet around then. And Varinus <laughs> does what Mark Antony flippantly told him to do, mm. goes right up to the doors of the Senate, takes out a hammer, nails to the front of the door there, Caesar's proclamation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's highly symbolic. Yeah, we get a voiceover of Caesar's words, which I gather are not Caesar's words, they're just his dramatic licensed words. And having done that, he goes down the steps of the forum, uh, hands Pullo his sword and walks off into the sunset. So. I'm sure he won't be allowed to go, though. <laughs> He'll be dragged back into this somehow. Yeah. The one thing that I um I did like in that scene, I just have you know more questions than answers about, I suppose, <laughs> is that when he nails the notice onto the doors of the Senate, there are other notices there. I, th- I think he might take the nail out of one of them and, or, or clear a few of them aside. This is to like stealing someone else's drawing pin yes. on a, a pin board and then yours falls down and they get to put theirs up. You know, you say that now, but I'm sure you're nostalgic for those days as well. <laughs> They're still happening in my world. <laughs> so these other notices that were on the doors here would have been other grievances that people have with the Senate, maybe? That's what they meant to be. They don't seem to be anything based in antiquity. We don't know if this happening. In, in ancient Rome itself. Mm. I mean, when I saw it, I thought of Martin Luther putting up his 95 theses. Um, yeah. you, you had a different thought about what it could be referring to. Uh, the, uh, is it Pasquino? Is that how you... Pasquino? I, I think Pasquino, I Pasquino, guess. Pasquino. Uh, Italian. The, the talking statues that are still current in Rome. So people posting up their grievances on them, yeah. on, on a statue. Well, it's, it's a good way to do it anonymously. And it'd mm. be nice if, you know, there's something going on in Rome today that... Uh, harks back 2,000 years to a, to a simpler time. <laughs> it's making an, uh, a link with uh, a modern phenomenon. Mm. And it, it is implying that it stretches right back. And given the nature of paper and how it decays, without yeah. anybody telling us that this occurred in ancient Rome, we'd have no way of knowing. What are you doing? I've done my duty and I have sinned enough. I resign. That's desertion. <laughs> I'm a traitor and a rebel. Why not a deserter as well? You can't just leave the 13th. Uh, we've then got uh, Pullo going back to get the gold, and I guess we actually didn't cover that, you know, they interrupted the people who stole the gold, and now Pullo goes back and makes off with the gold once he mm. realises what... It's such a good scene, him opening the next box, <laughs> closing the box, got to check all of them, now let's take the whole cover off, and he's suddenly realising how much gold is in that car. Yeah, I mean, that that seems to me, not as somebody who's who's studied film, but it, it looks like the kind of scene you'd get in a heist movie mm. where the person who hasn't actually carried out the heist accidentally falls into their lap, yeah. as it were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, of course, it's showing us another side of Polo's character is developing, that he cares enough to go back and save this... this Slave girl. En- en- enslave this captured girl, yeah. Mm, mm. And... Uh, Pompey didn't leave with the city's gold. And it's made note of, I think it's Cato in the show, we need the treasury to pay our soldiers, Mm. which would have been the case back then. But uh, it's Dio who actually says that he left the city so quickly that they didn't have time to get the gold. Right. Right. So now something else has happened to the gold. Yes. um, Which only applies to the series. What will happen to it next? And we'll um, find out. And Caesar, in his uh, typical bookending kind of manner, marches into Rome. Unopposed. And that's a great way to end the episode, isn't it? Yes. On that cliffhanger, as yeah. it were. All right. So um, we might deal with a, a couple of listener questions. And if you have any questions for us on raising standards, up until and including, I guess, the end of the next episode, which will be episode four, then send them through to emperorspodcast at gmail.com. The first question that I've got here is from Eric Hensley in New York. Naomi hints at the fact that Varinus has a power of life and death over his family in his role as the paterfamilias. How often 
Would a paterfamilias actually follow through with this? Did the power stand in more as a threat? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, a paterfamilias technically has the every right over the members of their family. And remember, that's not a nuclear family. That could be a more extended family and certainly includes slaves as well. We don't think a paterfamilias followed through with this very often, mm. um, partly because we don't think the Romans were entirely unfeeling, but there, there were connections and emotions involved in their family life. But in a way, it doesn't matter because as the, the sort of final question hints there, it's a symbolic power yeah. which gives the paterfamilias control and authority. Mm. It's actually an interesting point of history here in that the paterfamilias is the one with that kind of power over uh, a wife who has technically committed adultery. And that's going to change and mm. the state will have more of a, a stake in that. Mm. Mm. Uh, and indeed, um, Niobe's father would potentially have more if he's still alive. So at this point, it's kind of an in-house thing. So they're quite right. It's not something you would probably go to court over, although divorce might be involved if you decided not to kill her, which usually usually divorce would be the answer if mm. you decided to do anything about it. Okay? I'm, I'm, and that would be grounds for divorce, although divorce is very easy to get in Roman society in, in general. The, the closest example I could even think of was Augustus banishing his daughter yeah. over being promiscuous. Yeah. But that's after he has brought in those new laws yeah. whereby exile is part of the punishment for for adultery. Mm. It's the imperial family, so they're sort of in another category anyway. But... Um, but it does become, a, a, I guess you could say, a civil affair, a state affair, as opposed to at this point in history in the Republic, meant to be a personal affair. But the paterfamilias has the power within that personal sphere. All right. Thank you for that question, Eric. Uh, and the last question that we've got here is from, uh, we've got more than one listener. This is from Christopher Smith, the uh, not former director of the British School at Rome, uh, a Latin teacher as it turns out. So, hello, Chris. Thank you for this other question that you've given us. Uh, after Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and this kind of leads into the next episode as well, I guess. After Caesar crossed the Rubicon as the Civil War began, did we see soldiers like Varinus desert him? Uh, which is part one of the question. So, mm. I guess, do you want to weigh in on that before I continue with part two of the question? Well, I guess our earliest, most contemporary source is Caesar, and he certainly doesn't suggest that soldiers desert. Mm. All of the evidence we have suggests that one of the reasons that the Civil War happens is that Caesar and others have troops, and Caesar in particular, have troops who are entirely loyal to him. Mm. Now, no army will be 100% no desertions. I know this is a bit of a wishy-washy answer, but if we have to imagine what it's like after eight, possibly eight or more years of fighting in Gaul, then some soldiers will have deserted as they got close to Italy and close to Rome and close to home. Uh, but as we'll see in the outcome, you know, Caesar has a big enough army to carry out a civil war. Yeah. So by and large, no. Okay. Uh, part and, and also I might add that uh, we we don't have really good evidence that the idea of fighting for the ideals of the Republic mm. is something that went beyond the Senate. We don't know. Maybe it did. But the senators were the ones with the most to gain from this. Mm. So it's it's more likely that those fighting for Pompey are fighting for Pompey. Mm. They're loyal to him than loyal to an ideal of the Republic. Part two of his question was, or did a significant portion of citizens sign up in order to join him? 
So when he marches on Rome at the end of this, should he have had, if it was, you know, 100% realistic? Was was there a big groundswell, you know, was there members of the general population going, yay, Caesar, and cheering him on, which I suppose is what you get with a triumph. But just at this point, how much of a, a groundswell support was there for Caesar? Evidence from someone like Dio is that he had the city, that the city was on his side, or certainly that's the way that Pompey read it. Yeah. So it's quite likely that he did uh, attract more troops when he came into Rome, yes. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast for HBO's Rome with Rihanna Nevins and Matt Smith. Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or a multitude of other podcasting platforms. You can join us on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page and follow us both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I'm at Nightlight Guy. And the podcast is at Rome Podcast. Until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.